Have you ever been in a situation where someone is telling a story from their past and they seem oblivious to the fact that it reflects really badly on them? I was recently in that sort of space and I was inwardly cringing as I listened. At least I hope the cringe wasn't showing on my face. I wondered, was I just being too judgy or had this person been as bad as it seems? I sometimes have that same reaction when I read certain passages in the Bible. Why would God do that if God did? And in any case, why would it be recorded in Scripture? Aren't some stories better left untold? Do you have any Bible passages that you feel that way about? Well, as it happens, I got one of those passages to speak on today. It's the story you may know as the cleansing of the temple. We're journeying through Holy Week in this year's Lenten series, covering the six days that go from Palm Sunday to Good Friday over the six Sundays leading up to Easter. Aaron talked about the triumphal entry last week, the events of Palm Sunday. So I get the Monday, which is the day of Jesus' seemingly strange outburst in the temple. Some people have even labeled it his temple tantrum. It certainly seems out of character for a man of peace who claimed to be meek and lowly of heart. Let's take a look. Mark records that after the Palm Sunday parade, Jesus went into the temple and looked around carefully at everything that was going on. He then went back out to Bethany, where he and his disciples were staying. On the Monday morning, he returned to Jerusalem and to the temple. Here's how Matthew records the events of that day. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a cave of robbers. And the blind and the lame came up to him in the temple courts, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? So Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of children and nursing babies you have prepared for yourself praise? And leaving them, he went outside of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Probably for most of us, the hard part of this story is the furious tipping of tables and roasting of livestock. But I want to start by looking at what Jesus said because it provides helpful context for what went on that day. He only speaks twice, two short sentences, but he manages to quote at least three passages from the Hebrew scriptures, and in his actions appears to reference another passage. Some of you have told me that you get nervous when I wander off into the Old Testament, so so I'll just mention them briefly. 
Jesus says that God's house is to be a house of prayer. This is a quote from a beautiful prophetic description of life in the kingdom of Messiah. Isaiah says that foreigners and outcasts will be welcome and that Messiah's house will be a house of prayer for all people. The expulsion of the money changers may be a reference to a similar passage where Zechariah describes life in the kingdom of Messiah. He specifically says there will no longer be merchants in the temple. The reference to the temple having become a den of thieves is from Jeremiah writing in the time before the Hebrew people are taken off into captivity. He warns that they are putting way too much confidence in the fact that they have the temple, that somehow the fact that they live beside the temple of the Lord will protect them from any harm, even though their lives are rife with idolatry and injustice. I suppose one of the reasons Jesus emphasizes these prophetic passages is that the religious leaders should already know how to behave. Jesus is just now announcing his kingdom, but they didn't need to wait for that announcement to know that idolatry and injustice are not to be tolerated. The prophets are clear and consistent about that being the ethic of Messiah's kingdom. And, as an aside, I suppose we are in a similar situation. The ethic of the Sermon on the Mount seems so countercultural and unattainable that some dismiss it and say it's only for the heavenly age. But Jesus might say to us, I know my kingdom isn't fully implemented yet, but you already know that I want you to love your enemy. In Jesus' second statement that morning, he supports the children who are hailing him as the son of David, a term that implies he is Messiah. And he quotes a verse from Psalm 8 about children being compelled to praise God, implying as he receives their praises that he is God. The chief priests and scribes who are watching his every move will certainly have known each of these references and understood the implications. Jesus is claiming to be Messiah and making it clear that the way they are operating the temple is far from how things should be in his kingdom. But he could have given that message without tipping a bunch of tables, couldn't he? If Jesus wanted the sellers out of the temple, couldn't he just have asked nicely? Maybe Jesus' real goal isn't getting the sellers out of the temple. Maybe he's enacting a piece of prophetic theater aimed at vividly communicating an important message. The Hebrew prophets often did unusual but very symbolic actions, not because of any direct benefit from the action itself, but to try and communicate God's truth to an increasingly godless population. For example, God told Isaiah to walk around naked for three years as a sign and portent of coming judgment. God commanded Hosea to marry a working prostitute so that she would be a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. 
And Jesus also used prophetic theater. Think of his turning water into wine for the wedding at Cana. At face value, Jesus is being kind to a wedding planner who has underestimated the wine order, and he probably saved her career. If he hadn't intervened, she never would have gotten another gig, at least not in Cana. But surely Jesus' actions and the inclusion of the story in our Bibles were motivated by more than compassion for a planner in distress. What Jesus is doing is creating a metaphor. He's giving us a picture of life in his kingdom. Life that isn't about ritual observance. He actually used the water jars for ritual purification ceremonies to make his wine in. No, his kingdom won't be about better rituals, but about a rich and abundant life around a shared table. If we look at the events in the temple that Monday morning as an act of prophetic theater, how does that help us? What's the message that Jesus is wanting to communicate? I don't think the point is cleaning the temple. After all those cattle and sheep and birds had been there, you'd need a couple of days with a good power washer to do that. Nor do I think it's simply a metaphorical cleaning getting the mercenary commercial activity out of the building and down the street so that traditional worship and sacrifice can continue as usual. No, I think his actions are actually symbolizing the end of the temple era. On Tuesday, he will preach very explicitly about the coming destruction of the temple and the end of the ritual sacrifice. But on this Monday, he speaks with actions rather than words and his actions condemned the systemic corruption in the temple priesthood and elevated those who had suffered under that injustice. He passes judgment on the unjust practices in the temple and raises up those who had suffered under them. What do I mean by unjust practices? This was the temple the epicenter of Jewish worship. Surely the priests who served there would be deeply faithful to the Lord. But Jesus judges them for injustice, both in his actions on Monday and in his teaching on Tuesday. And if we're tempted to think that Jesus is being too hard on them, they continue to show their true colors as the week goes on, colluding to get Jesus crucified and telling Pilate that they have no king but Caesar. So what was going on at those tables before Jesus overturned them? Remember that these events occur at Passover. As Aaron pointed out last week, the city was packed with Jews from all over the Middle East who had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. When they went to the temple, they would have had to pay the temple tax. And the rules were that the temple tax could only be paid in shekels. Even if they had the Roman coins that were commonly used throughout Palestine at the time, they would need to exchange them. We might wonder about what is this temple tax and why do the money changers need to be right in the temple? But those aren't the real problem. These money changers charged exorbitant exorbitant exchange rates. You thought those currency exchange places at the airport were bad? They've got nothing on these guys. 
Imagine a poor family who could only afford to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem once in their lifetime, getting to the temple and finding out they couldn't enter because they couldn't afford the exchange rate to buy the necessary shekels. Creating barriers, cost barriers to being able to worship, sure seems cruel and unjust. But it gets worse. Some commentators say that the money that was collected through that unjust practice was funneled into a kind of loan shark operation. Poor people who needed money to live on could come to the temple and get a loan, but the loan was actually a kind of mortgage on their property, and if they couldn't make the payments, their property would be seized. This is likely the practice that Jesus denounces the next day when he says, Beware of the scribes who shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. At this point, if you're a person who has the kind of exaggerated sense of justice that my late husband had, you're probably trying to figure out how to time travel back there so that you could help Jesus tip a few tables. The temple tax became a barrier for the very poor who wanted to worship, but they weren't the only ones who were being excluded. There was an area in the outer courtyard of the temple where Gentile followers of Yahweh could worship, but that was the area that had been taken over by the money changers and the market for animals. I don't know about you, but I don't find either the hubbub of a busy marketplace or sounds and smells of a stable to be particularly conducive to worship. Finally, those with disabilities, and particularly the blind, were thought to be impure and were excluded from temple worship. To be fair, that regulation was not invented by temple leaders in the time of Jesus. It dated back to the Torah, and ableist biases were reinforced by King David. This kind of exclusionary framework meant that when the Jewish elite came to worship, it would be just us, the affluent, ethnically pure, and able-bodied. In response, Jesus calls for justice. He interrupts the collection of the temple tax and the financial barrier it represented. He clears the sellers and their wares out of the court of the Gentiles. He invites the blind and lame into the temple where he heals them. He doesn't heal them so they'll be acceptable to come in. He welcomes them as they are and then heals them. And he honors the prophetic praises of the children whose voices would normally not be heard. This passage is not an easy one, and I may have just made it more complicated. It can be seen as an act of aggression by a rabbi who preached nonviolence. Indeed, I've seen a clip of a pro-gun American pastor who interpreted it as Jesus endorsing weapons of violence when he made a whip. To be clear, John's account is the only one that mentions the whip, and he uses it to drive livestock, not to punish people. But perhaps a more fundamental reason why we are, or at least I have been uncomfortable with it, is that it shows Jesus in his role as judge. 
Maybe I heard too many scary Sunday school stories when I was a kid, probably stories intended to make me run to the arms of Jesus to save me from from a wrathful judge who would send me to hell, but scary stories nonetheless. The notion of God as judge made my sensitive spirit obsess over the bad things I'd done. The time I was mean to the shy girl in my class. The time I inconvenienced my mum by being late. And I usually tried to just not think about it. When I was in my fundamentalist phase, I actually took some pleasure in the notion of God as judge because I knew I was in the right and looked forward to God judging those immoral people who had mocked me for being too religious. I hope I've moved on from that. But more recently, I am coming to see God's justice differently. That it's not primarily about dishing out punishment, but rather it's about setting things right. And I think Jesus illustrates that well in today's story. His focus isn't on punishing or attacking individual people, but he dismantles an oppressive system. And he not only gets rid of it, he addresses the needs of those who have been harmed by it. For those of us who come from a just-us culture, Jesus' act of prophetic theater invites us into the work of justice, of naming and addressing systemic injustice, and of welcoming and serving those who have been excluded. 